Well, it is wonderful to be back with our friends here and to see new faces as we do, it seems like, uh, most any time that we've been here. And we're happy for um, the circumstance in which we're here now uh, as well for the uh, happy occasion for the Baileys and how the Lord has uh, provided for them and for those young'uns, right? All right, let's, uh, let's look at... Uh, a book of the Bible that um, may not get a lot of fanfare and attention, the book of Joel, and you'll find that one uh, back toward the end of the Old Testament, what I call the clean part of the Bible. We don't use very much. Um, it's the second of the minor prophets, Hosea, Joel, and Amos. And while you're doing that, I might mention for those that have a particular interest in the Crisis Pregnancy Center, I'd like you to pray. I should have mentioned this, Randy, a few minutes ago probably, but um, we have a couple of good opportunities coming up. Uh, one is tomorrow. It'll be my first time to speak to a class at Virginia Highlands Community College, the UCLA of the South. Have you ever heard that? It's the upper corner of Lower Abingdon. Okay. Anyway, that's uh, going to be a neat opportunity, we hope, but you never know what uh, some of these opportunities hold. And then uh, the following week, um, someday that week, I'm going back to a class at Emory & Henry to, to talk about uh, the work of the center and then you know several churches here and there. A pretty busy schedule up through uh, the, the walkathon date, which is the last uh, Saturday of April. So uh, appreciate you praying about that. I want to read from the book of Joel in chapter 1, and uh, the, the text, uh, more or less, is going to be uh, some verses in chapter 2, but you have to read chapter 1 for the rest of the book to make uh, much sense. So I want to read from chapter 1, beginning with verse 4 uh, in the book of Joel, and let's hear these words that the Spirit of God caused to be written for the Lord's people, including us. From Joel 1, verse 4, What the gnawing locust has left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust has left, the creeping locust has eaten. And what the creeping locust has left, the stripping locust has eaten. Awake, drunkards, and weep, and wail, all you wine drinkers, on account of the sweet wine that is cut off from your mouth. For a nation has invaded my land, mighty and without number. Its teeth are the teeth of a lion, and it has the fangs of a lioness. It has made my vine a waste, and my fig tree splinters. It has stripped them bare and cast them away. Their branches have become white. Wail like a virgin girded with sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. The grain offering and the libation are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests mourn the ministers of the Lord. The field is ruined. The land mourns, for the grain is ruined. The new wine dries up. Fresh oil fails. Be ashamed, O farmers. Wail, O vine dressers, for the wheat and the barley, because the harvest of the field is destroyed. The vine dries up. And the fig tree fails, the pomegranate, the palm also, and the apple tree. All the trees of the field dry up. Indeed, rejoicing dries up from the sons of men. Gird yourselves with sackcloth and lament, O priests. 
Wail, O ministers of the altar. Come and spend the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God. For the grain offering and the libation are withheld from the house of your God. Consecrate a fast. Proclaim a solemn assembly. Gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. Alas, for the day, for the day of the Lord is near and it will come as destruction from the Almighty. Has not food been cut off from before our eyes? Gladness and joy from the house of our God. The seeds shrivel under their clods. The storehouses are desolate. The barns are torn down, for the grain is dried up. How the beasts groan. The herds of the cattle wander aimlessly because there's no pasture for them. Even the flocks of sheep suffer. To Thee, O Lord, I cry, for fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness, and the flame has burned up all the trees of the field. Even the beasts of the field pant for Thee, for the water brooks are dried up, and fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness. Well, what a depressing scene, isn't it? (laughs) What else could go wrong, right? Oh, this is a, uh, a story about bugs about locusts in particular and that is the that seems to be the the biggest part of the problem uh, there are some commentators who think that in addition to all this uh, plague of, of locusts and this uh, uh, siege of of the pests uh, that on top of all that there was a extreme heat or a drought of some sort and uh, some of the the language there later in the chapter would uh, perhaps indicate this, but we know with, with certainty that you've got a problem here with locusts, and they have just come through in successive waves and and just clean house. They've just eaten everything that could be eaten, and evidently all the green foliage is gone. Now, this um, anyone back then and, and and now, of course, who is familiar with the Old Testament would hear about this and, and uh, such a story and not be entirely surprised uh, because this is something that was actually predicted many, many years before this, uh, this happened. And you can go back and look, for instance, at Deuteronomy chapter 28. If you want to keep a finger there in the book of Joel and uh, look with me at one verse in Deuteronomy 28. Now, Deuteronomy, of course, is the... The setting of that book is Moses, uh, right at the end of his life, is getting ready to, to pass off the scene. He's going to, to, to give, give way to, to Joshua to lead the people in the promised land and, and, and all that. Now, uh, at this point, uh, the, the, in fact, the entire book of Deuteronomy is Moses repeating and, and re- rehashing the laws that the Lord had given uh, to His people on Mount Sinai. A lot of that generation that heard them initially from, from Sinai have passed on and, and uh, are um, uh, lying dead in the wilderness. But here a new generation get ready to take the land of promise and Moses uh, re- rehashes then some of the main points of the laws that the Lord had given. And uh, when you get to chapter 28, you're getting these curses and blessings. And Moses says, you, you keep the Lord's laws, things are going to go well. You, you disregard His laws and turn from Him, then you can expect some uh, curses and some problems to come uh, in, in the Lord's discipline. And guess what one of those is going to be? 
You notice verse 38 of Deuteronomy 28. He says, You shall bring out much seed to the field, to the field but you shall gather in little, for the locust shall consume it. So how about that? One of the covenant promises and curses that the, that the Lord's people could expect would be bugs. They would be these locusts that would come and just clean off their fields and uh, take uh, the produce of, of the field. So uh, no big surprise here uh, that there's going to be a, an invading nation, as it were, of locusts that would come in and just strip the foliage from the field and, and, uh, and forest. Now... The, uh, the result, of course, is the land's just devastated. Here you have a, a, a largely agricultural economy, and, uh, and, and, and it's just gone. And here's a nation, then, that's going to be right on the brink of, of extinction, just, just passing off the scene uh, in history there. The land is just completely devastated. You know, it's hard to imagine uh, exactly what, what it looked like or the extent of, of the damage and, and devastation here. But I can remember uh, a number of years ago back in Chattanooga where, where I grew up, there was a, a siege of what we call uh, tent caterpillars. I don't know if there's a proper name uh, besides that. We just call them uh, tent caterpillars. And they would come in the summer now, in the summer months, and eat every leaf off every tree. And it was really strange to look around in the summer, you know, feel the hot weather and everything looks like in the fall and winter months. Uh, every leaf was gone. It was really, uh, really strange. But um, imagine this happening not just in an isolated area or a city, but all across uh, the land uh, of, of Israel. And then, of course, with that, then, you're going to have no food to eat. The whole nation is, is going to be uh, hungry, and um, this is going to apply to the animals and, and, and everything. Then uh, an offering to the Lord. They're not going to have that either. They need that kind of stuff uh, to, to, uh, uh, to offer to the Lord at the particular times uh, that the Lord had established. And, and that's another thing yet they don't have. And it's interesting that that's mentioned, that one of the, that the problems they have is not just food for them to eat, or food for their animals to eat, but the things that they need in worship of the Lord. All of these are gone. Now, as you might expect, uh, the book of Joel is not just here to give us a, a, a news report and to tell us something that happened, but to tell us something behind the scenes and to tell us something of why this happened and, and more importantly, perhaps, what the Lord's people need to do uh, in this uh, crisis. So you're not, you don't have just a historical description, but you've got the Lord's commentary and you've got His con confronting of uh, His people. And as you might expect, and as the, the Deuteronomy passage uh, certainly indicates, that all of this ha hasn't just come as some arbitrary uh, you know, stroke of, of fate, uh, but it is it has come because of the disobedience of the Lord's people. This is something of the consequences that they have brought upon themselves. Uh, but it's also about forgiveness. I'm glad it doesn't just, just stop with the, the confronting and, and talking about disobedience, but also talks about forgiveness and restoration for those who have been broken and, uh, and shattered uh, under the, um, the, the guilt of, of their sinfulness and, and waywardness. Now, let's, uh, let's get to chapter 2, if we could, and get to uh, part of the, the, the meat of the message and what the Lord's people must do. And I want to take it up there with verse 12, chapter 2 and verse 
12. And the prophet says, yet, yet even now declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning, and rend your heart and not your garments. Now return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness, and relenting of evil. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, even a grain offering and a libation uh, for the Lord your God. Blow a trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, proclaim a solemn assembly, gather the people, sanctify the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children and the nursing infants. Let the bridegroom come out of his, of, of his room and the bride out of her bridal chamber. You see, what's going on here is so important as to interrupt a wedding, right? Pretty important, huh? And then verse 17, let the priests, the Lord's ministers, weep between the porch and the altar. And let them say, spare thy people, O Lord, and do not make thine inheritance a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they say... Among the nations, where is their God? Well, here is what the Lord's people need to do. Faced with this devastation that is part of the Lord's discipline to bring them back to Himself, to to bring them in a state of brokenness and humility to a point of repentance. And folks, I think we see repentance described in the book of Joel in a way that is maybe more graphic than anywhere else in the Scriptures. He just puts that that term, repentance, under a a magnifying glass. And we get to see more details and more of what's involved in true repentance uh, from the Lord's standpoint. Now, uh, real repentance, what we see see very clearly here, is a change in the heart. In the heart. That is where real repentance starts. It's a disposition. Uh, starts with with an attitude, has to do with the drives and the intentions and the thoughts that only God may be able to see. And you can be sure He does see it. He looks past what we wear, past the expression on our face, past the things that we say, past uh, our nonverbal gestures, it, things that can be very uh, misleading to other people. And we can fool other people with things like that, but we can't the Lord. But repentance starts in, in, the, in the inner recesses of our lives, in the very thoughts of our heart. So it's not just talking a good game. It's not just an empty religious ritual. It's, it's not a, just a performance or a mechanical uh, kind of a superficial parroting. It is not a, a show. But uh, it is actual, actually a disposition of the heart. At least that's where it starts. What is our attitude about our sinfulness and those thoughts and those words and those deeds in our lives that have offended the Lord and have transgressed that, that absolute, that, that the moral absolutes that He has established and, and uh, codified in His commandments? What is our attitude about that? And there needs to be a brokenness. There needs to be a turning in our hearts. And this uh, point, I think, is made uh, very, very clearly in the, uh, the episode in the life of Saul. And you can maybe look at this on your own time. Uh, 1 Samuel 15, 
is, is the story of, of Saul's uh, what we sometimes call incomplete obedience. He says he uh, got rid of all the animals in the nation he was supposed to destroy, but he didn't really. He stashed a few away, you know, to keep for uh, for other purposes. And he's confronted about this. And you remember the uh, uh, the, the punchline of, of the message of conviction there: to obey is better than to sacrifice. That is, you know, he might have been, you know, making those sacrifices right down the line, maybe even throwing in a few extra for good measure, but that wasn't good enough because the Lord saw the heart of the man and the fact that it wasn't fully, completely given over to obedience to him. You can uh, see also, for instance, Psalm 51, verse 17, speaking of a broken spirit and a contrite heart. It's what the Lord is looking for in real repentance. Let's talk about this um, a, a little more, uh, real repentance. You know, I could have just played a tape of Steve's class here from Sunday school this morning because he, uh, he addressed this, and, uh, and it was very good. This will be review for some of the folks in that, uh, that class. But uh, I want to, to especially emphasize the first element of true repentance. I believe that it involves a true assessment of, of sin, a true assessment of sin, and I and I say this because we're going to go on. I'll go ahead and give you the other two here, but you're going to talk about a, a determination to forsake that sin, and then a change in the lifestyle, the actual outworking of that change in attitude. Uh, but but all of you know, the second uh, the second and third points there are all moot if we really aren't calling sin what it is. And, and we can't just call it a, a misunderstanding, all right? And, and you know how we, how we do with euphemisms? You, you know what a euphemism is? It's a nice, soft, uh, non-judgmental term that, that we're substituting nowadays for more harsh, judgmental-sounding uh, words. Uh, maybe some, a couple of illustrations just very quickly. Uh, we used to call a pornography uh, filth, and now we call it what? Adult entertainment. You hear the difference? Okay, that's a euphemism. It is a nice, mild, soft, you know, uh, non-abrasive kind of a term that we become a lot more comfortable with instead of calling what it is. Uh, we used to call, uh, for instance, uh, uh, homosexuality. We used to call it perversion, you know, back in the dark ages. You remember that? Now we call it what? Alternative lifestyle. You hear the change? And it wouldn't be so bad if the church hadn't picked up the same habits. And I mean using euphemisms instead of using truth. And I think what I think we do a lot of times is, is examples just outright deception and dishonesty and lying and, and disingenuity in our relationships with people, and we just call them misunderstandings. You ever heard that? Now maybe there's some real genuine misunderstandings, but let's don't call lying misunderstanding. Let's have a, a true um, assessment of sin, uh, we we can, uh, for instance, we, uh, instances of, of a true contentious spirit. Okay, if if there, if that's the case in our lives, then let's call it a contentious spirit, and let's not just call it personality conflicts. Okay, so a true assessment of sin, and then of course moving on from that to a determination to forsake sin. It's not just saying, yeah, that really is not too good. I'm sure the Lord doesn't like that. But, uh, you know, he'll understand, and we're not all perfect and, and just kind of raking it under the rug, but it's moving to that second point and saying, I want to turn from this. I don't want this to characterize my life. 
I want to forsake uh, this sin. And then a change in lifestyle, actually working out that change in, uh, in our attitude about uh, the, uh, the sin. And this may involve, you know, a, a, a particular change in our routine. Okay? And if, if uh, alcohol has a particular uh, grip on our lives from our past, then it might be good if we try not to walk by stores that sell alcohol. Or if, if it, they're driving by, or wh- whatever we can do to change uh, that routine and uh, and avoid placing ourselves in temptation. It may be asking a close friend and a brother or sister in Christ to help us with a particular temptation. I mean, to be serious enough about turning from a sin to actually ask them to to give counsel and encouragement and kick us in the seat of the pants when we need that. That that kind of accountability. You know, that's a nasty word in, in so many uh, thinking of so many people. Uh, but to, to, if, if that's necessary to, to really um, uh, re- repent and stick to it, then we do that. And then uh, making restitution if possible. If we're turning from something that has hurt and, and harmed other people, if there's anything we can do to repair that, then we ought to do it. Uh, all of this, I think, being an, involved in real repentance. But again, that starts with the heart it is not just a perfunctory mechanical uh, show. Now, I want to ask you something about the verses we read just a few moments ago. And uh, just to get to a, a second point here, you'll notice in uh, chapter 1 and verse 4, excuse me, 14, chapter 1, verse 14 of Joel, it says, Consecrate a fast. Okay? And then over in chapter 2, verse 12, uh, with fasting and weeping and mourning. In chapter 2, verse 15, consecrate a fast. What is odd about that? Why would God tell starving people to fast? Can you imagine some of the snickers? Can you imagine some of the ridicule? And, and, and any group listening to Joel, you know, spout this off, I can imagine some say, yeah, sure, I'll go right home and work on that right now. And, you know, everybody's stomach's growling and, and, and all as it is. Uh, what, <laughs> isn't, isn't fasting what everybody was doing, you know, like it or not? So why would he say to starving people that you need to fast? Well, I have a suggestion. Okay, I believe that the Lord, and, and of course speaking through the prophet here, knows that the people would be tempted to think, if we just look as repentant as possible, we'll get the Lord to kind of turn on some relief for us and get our food back. Okay? And, and go through everything just to get something back from God. But what is fasting? Well, fasting, of course, is setting aside your regular desires and, and, and uh, steps to, to, to meet your routine needs. And, and, and the Scriptures, of course, is very often coupled with prayer. And it's setting aside uh, food and giving the time and the energy and the interest and all of that that we uh, usually apply to food. Uh, <clears throat> it is it's shifting that focus and, and that interest uh, toward prayer. 
So you're saying, I'm not going to do this, at least for a particular given period of time, but I'm going to give myself to work on my relationship with the Lord and communing with Him. And what I believe, folks, is that, <clears throat> that, that Joel wanted those people to say by fasting that the big problem they were facing was not that they needed food. The big problem that they were facing was there's been damage done in our relationship with God. And rather than just getting food for our bellies, we want to get that problem straightened out first and foremost. I believe they would be saying that by fasting. And the principle here uh, is, is, is that we don't repent just to get things out of God, just because we want to kind of use it as a, as a bargaining tool you know, to get something from Him. Okay, you understand what I'm saying? And there's a story told uh, by uh, one of my uh, professors in, in college who uh, lived up in New Jersey. He had a friend who was a nightclub owner. He's a, a singer and, and, and whatnot. And uh, he was, uh, his, his life just began to bottom out. He was uh, quite uh, uh, given to alcohol and, and it was uh, destroying his family. His wife and his kids had left. And uh, everything just began to unravel uh, further in his work. And uh, finally, he uh, bottomed out and, and determined to kill himself. He, was, he had a, a plan to go to a particular railroad track, uh, lay down on the tracks and wait until a train came. And that would take care of it. And he thought of one more thing he ought to do just to kind of wrap things up uh, on his life. And he had to go and talk to his brother. And in the Lord's gracious providence, the brother began to talk to him, not knowing Dave's plans. The brother began to talk with him about his life and about the claims of Jesus Christ and what Christianity was about. And he appealed to Dave uh, to, to just recognize he was sinful as, as everyone is. Because of that, he deserved the wrath of God. And the death of Jesus Christ took that wrath upon himself. And we claim that for ourselves and you know, claim the payment of that sin uh, as, as our own when we uh, come in repentance and faith and uh, trust in Him. And Dave did that. And he began to grow and to learn and develop and, and uh, uh, spent a lot of time with folks who, who could teach him and help ground him in things. And finally, he came to the point where he was very depressed and discouraged one day. And he talked to a trusted friend about it. He says, I don't understand. I've done everything right. I've trusted Christ. I'm reading my Bible. I'm praying regularly. I'm going to church. I've, you know, I've uh, gotten rid of the bottle and, and uh, getting my life back together. Why doesn't the Lord bring my wife and kids back? Okay, you ever thought of that? Why doesn't the Lord now do His part since I'm doing mine? Okay, you hear that bargaining going on and the friend told Dave he said Dave is that the only reason you're doing all of this and he began to think through and came to the point where I think the Lord would have us to come uh, after reading this this morning and that is we repent because God is there and because he is holy and has a rightful claim on our lives and on our obedience and even if we don't get those extra trinkets and blessings, and even if He doesn't fix up the damage that's been done in our lives, He's still our God. And we belong to Him. And He's worthy of our love and our obedience.
And in case you're wondering, about two weeks after that conversation that the man named Dave had, guess who gave him a call? It was his wife. And they did, in fact, get back together. And it's a, something of a happily ever after uh, story. Uh, praise the Lord. Anyway, I think the thing to see here is that repentance is not a tool for leverage to get things from God. Okay, Repentance is what we're called to do in, um, when there's been damage done in that relationship with Him. Well, I mentioned that there was, um, there was good news, and I want to get to that in just a moment. But just very briefly, I want to read something to you that, that talks about, and I think it's the most uh, graphic, I think, that, that I've ever read, that speaks about how we're tempted to just uh, go through the motions in our walk with the Lord in a very ritualistic, routine, mechanical kind of way. And I think that the prophet here would call us out of this kind of, of mechanical, thoughtless, uh, uh, mindless uh, recitation. But I want to read a little bit from a book called A Distant Grief. It's by Kifa Simpongi, who was a pastor of a um, church in Uganda of a mere uh, 14,000 members, would you believe? Uh, after pastoring there, decided he needed seminary, came to the United States, enrolled in a seminary in Philadelphia. Uh, he was um, in Uganda. He, he was uh, living in, uh, under the uh, regime of Idi Amin. Uh, the book is about a great deal of persecution and, uh, and heartache inflicted in many lives uh, in those years. But I want to read what he has to say about his life in the United States, somewhat removed from the problems in Uganda. He says, uh, in Uganda, or excuse me, back up, but it was then in my second year that I noticed the change that had come into my life. In Uganda, my wife and I read the Bible for hope and life. We read to hear God's promises, to hear His commands and obey them. There had been no time for argument, no time for religious discrepancies or doubts. But now in the security of a new life, and with the reality of death fading from mind, I found myself reading Scripture to analyze texts and speculate about meaning. I came to enjoy abstract theological discussions with my fellow students, and while these were intellectually refreshing, it wasn't long before our fellowship uh, revolved around ideas rather than the work of God in our lives. It was not the blood of Jesus Christ that gave us unity, but our agreement on doctrinal issues. We came together not for confession and forgiveness, but for debate. But the biggest change came to my prayer life. In Uganda, I had prayed with a deep sense of urgency. I refused to leave my knees until I was certain I had been in the presence of the resurrected Christ. It was not just the gift that I needed. I needed to see the giver. I needed to know that the God of orphans and widows, the God of the helpless, heard my prayers. But now, after a year in Philadelphia, the urgency was gone. When I prayed publicly, I was more concerned to be theologically correct than to be in God's presence. Even in private, my prayers were no longer the helpless cries of a child. They were spiritual tranquilizers, thought that made no more contact with anything outside themselves. More and more, I found myself coming to God with vague requests for gifts I did not expect. Well, that's well put, isn't it? You ever feel like that? That things just gotten so dry, so mechanical, so thoughtless, 
And maybe this would be a good challenge then to hear about the repentance that God calls for, the repentance that's from the heart. He said, don't, not, don't just tear your outward garment, but tear your heart. And even without any strings and expectations and demands upon God to come through with blessings. But just very, very briefly, and we won't do this justice, I think, but I am glad there's a third point here. And the prophet doesn't just leave people raked over the coals and, uh, uh, you know, in, in just in, in the, the state of conviction there. Uh, but there's some good news. And I want you to scan on down to chap- in chapter 2 to verse 25. And this is the part of the, uh, the book that has to do with the Lord's promises to forgive and to restore. Okay? And again, speaking to people whose sin has been very costly. And think about that. Whose sin has been very costly to them. Here's some good news. He says, I will make up to you for the years that the swarming locust has eaten, creeping locust, stripping locust, gnawing locust, my great army which I sent among you, and you shall have plenty to eat and be satisfied and praise the name of your God who has dealt wondrously with you. Then my people will never be put to shame. Thus you will know that I am in the midst of Israel and that I am the Lord your God and there is no other. My people will never be put to shame. Having called the people to repentance and a deep down from the heart repentance, here's a promise. He says, I will make up to you. My blessings will not just get you back to the point before the locusts came. I will make up for all of that and continue uh, to, to bless uh, in your life. And you know, it's, it's good to know when you Think about the damage that's been done in our lives and in people's lives in disregarding the Lord. That there, that the Lord will in some way cause what's been done in the past to set the stage for greater growth and perhaps effectiveness in serving the Lord. Now careful, careful here. This doesn't say, for instance, when somebody has had a uh, you know, lived in alcoholism for 50 years, comes to know Christ. Uh, as wonderful as that is and as dramatic a change in life as that is, the Lord may not, you know, take out a magic wand and go poof and give him a whole new liver and, and heart, you know, and, and fix up everything uh, that, that's been damaged. Uh, but the Lord will in some way use that past and use those circumstances to either to build into a person's life such a tremendous love for Him and a closeness to Him and an appreciation of grace. Or perhaps in addition to that, to put them in situations of ministry to other people facing the same things. There is some way that the Lord will use any past and the great damage that's been done by our sinful choices. I'm very glad there's something like this to offer to our friends who talk to us, and there's just one example here, who talk to us about having had abortions. And so many of them think, yeah, the Lord might forgive some things, might forgive thieves, might for, you know, forgive uh, uh, other folks who have done things wrong, but not this. And we're glad that we're able to say, 
If we confess our sins, He is faithful, faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse from all, all unrighteousness. And that there is some way that the Lord can use any circumstance of our past and whatever damage there is there, whatever scars, whatever heartache, to work in our lives to bring His blessings. It's good news, isn't it? Let's pray. Our Father, thanks so much for the teaching, for the reproof, the correction, and the training in righteousness that we have in the passage before us this morning. Father, thank You for the promise of making up to us for the years of damage that have come as a result of our rebellion and waywardness. Oh, Father, we would ask You to open our eyes to those things in our lives that call for repentance even now. And Father, we do pray that it would not be just a mechanical, outward, superficial show, but it would indeed be from the heart and show itself in our lifestyle. Oh, Father, we ask You to guide us as we think about these things. Help us not to be forgetful hearers, but effectual doers. In the name of Jesus, amen.